About three years ago, I called up my mother and excitedly told her that I was going to write a book, a Persian cookbook. There was a momentary silence on the other end. I suppose I should have known better to expect the phone call version of flying confetti, balloons, and fireworks exploding through the receiver. True to form, her response was quick, to the point, and pragmatic. Eh, but you can't tell people exactly how to cook or what to use. They have to look in their own pantry and fridge and see what they have on hand and then use their own taste to make it delicious. Her response, although not quite what I expected, was nonetheless comforting in its familiarity. A few weeks later, Maman, my mother, came to visit us from Vancouver. As is now customary, she slowly led a procession to her room with my daughters. There they are, going through the Sabzi then, with my daughters in tow to open her suitcase. My girls, unable to contain their excitement, gathered around her to see what guguli, which is uh, what they call her, it's an, affectionately, an affectionate term, we are a culture and a family that can't resist a good nickname, um, to see what guguli had brought along this time. I was in the kitchen preparing an afternoon snack and could hear the oohs and ahs and thank yous. And I could hear Maman telling them which gift was for whom and uh, instructing them where to place everything. One by one, um, the girls came giggling. They each took one end of a four foot long sangak bread and placed it in the middle of our kitchen table, unrolling it like an ancient scroll etched in hard to decipher signs and symbols. With outstretched arms, they brought forth loaf after loaf of barberry bread. Careful not to spill anything, they managed to tr transfer to the fridge a quadruple-bound container of feta cheese, or as we like to call, a maman-bound container of feta cheese, which had somehow miraculously made the 2,000-mile trip. And then out came the bags of nochochi, um, those are dried chickpeas, uh, toot, dried mulberries, um, and following behind the girls, maman made sure I appreciated the fact that the Zirishk, barberries, were sent from my aunt in Tabriz, and that the small containers of halvash and chuchan, these are herbs similar to mint that are only native to the Caspian region of Iran, that the halvash and chuchan were a gift from Mrs. So-and-so, who had just returned from Shomar. At this point, I should mention that I live in Los Angeles home to the largest Iranian population outside of Iran, and teeming with many Iranian grocers selling all of these goods, except for maybe the halvash and chuchan. But regardless of this fact, this is how my mother visits, and this is how she sends me back to LA whenever we visit her in Vancouver. This is my mother's version of fireworks and flying confetti. She was celebrating my good news about the book and her reunification with her loved ones the only way she knew how, with a suitcase full of food. But the most precious gift of all was the most inconspicuous looking one, a prescription pill bottle, sometimes orange, sometimes green, containing nothing short of contraband, Iranian saffron. And I think you can see it right at the very lower edge of the picture there. Unadulterated, pure, and golden. Carried across borders, handed from one traveler to the next, meticulously ground up by my mother in Vancouver, securely packed in a childproof pill bottle, and delivered straight to my kitchen in Los Angeles. Saffron is my salve and my mother is my supplier. <laughs> it's an often repeated phone call throughout the Iranian diaspora. I'm sure you've all experienced, many of you have experienced this at some point. The conversation starts with the obligatory pleasantries, 
And then suddenly, voices are lowered to hush murmurs, and the conversation takes on conspiratorial tones. Quickly and quietly, the message is relayed. A family member or a friend, Mrs. So-and-so, is going back to Iran, so how many packets or misqal of saffron do you need? In an instant, law-abiding, mild-mannered grandmothers, aunts, and uncles turn in their best Academy Award-worthy performances as black market operatives negotiating the delivery of the world's most expensive and sought-after spice. This allure, reverence, and obsession with saffron can be traced back to the beginnings of civilization. It's believed that saffron first originated in Iran some 2,500, 3,000 years ago. There's a familiar joke among Iranians that we like to proclaim that any and all things began with us, be it food, literature, music, science, math, architecture, you name it, we created it. And such is the legend of saffron. Its storied reputation as an illicit drug or hard to mine prize jewel is as old as our history. Ancient Persians, like the Sumerians before them, treasured saffron for its healing, mood-enhancing, decorative, and eventually culinary values. Over time, it also became an extremely valuable commodity to further trade along the Silk Road. Saffron threads were woven into textiles and used as a rich dye, to dye uh, mostly to dye robes and to dye rugs. Its intoxicating fragrance was used to perfume and purify lavish halls and gardens. Medicinally, saffron was the golden cure for just about any ailment. Used in potions as a sleeping aid, scattered on beds and pillows, again, to promote sleep, sipped in teas to suppress coughs, some saffron for you tonight, and most famously used as what we refer to today as an antidepressant. In his book, 1,000 Years of Flowers and Plants in Persian Poetry, Dr. Gerami recounts how ancient prayers would be written on Persian, would be written on parchment in saffron ink. Then the parchment would be soaked in water to infuse the water with saffron in prayer. And then that potion would be given to someone who was suffering from melancholy to drink and wash away their sorrows. To this day, saffron is touted as a cure for heartache. But there is also a proviso that reverberates through every Iranian household. Saffron can soothe the sting of a broken heart, but too much saffron will bring about excessive laughter and uncontrollable laughter, which can lead to hysteria and mania. Like our history, both ancient and modern, we are a people tangled in a web of paradoxes. It's these very same seductive qualities that the Persians also used to their advantage to keep foes at bay. There was a fear among foreign invaders that magical saffron potions would be used against them as a secret weapon to either lull them to sleep or drive them mad with uncontrollable laughter. Over the course of time and conquerors conquering, the allure and magic of saffron spread all the way to the east, all the way to China, and to the west. Alexander fell under its spell and used it in battle to heal wounds. It's even said that he used it as hair dye to make his famous curls more golden. Cleopatra not only famously bathed in saffron water to enhance her golden complexion, possibly a predecessor for the spray tans that we use these days, but to also seduce suitors and lovers, and yes, Saffron is said to be a potent aphrodisiac, which might be easily deduced by the warnings of excessive laughter and hysteria. To the east, saffron made its way to India, where it was cultivated in Kashmir. Um, they say that after the death of the Buddha, the ruling class of Buddhist priests 
had their robes dyed in saffron as a sign of respect and royalty. And to this day, Buddhist monks' robes are the color of red gold, the color of saffron. By the time the saffron reached the Romans, it was decreed a spice only worthy of the royals and illegal for the peasants to be in possession of it. As a sign of Roman autocratic and, op and opulent rule, it's said that Emperor Nero ordered saffron to be scattered on the streets of Rome to honor and celebrate his return. That's a waste of saffron. <laughs> The use and cultivation of saffron in Europe subsided with the, decline, with the decline of the Roman Empire. That is, until the Arab conquests of Iran, which eventually the Moors, like the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans centuries before them, became entra entranced with this spice and traveled with it through North Africa, Spain, and Sicily, which still those regions use saffron in their, um, in their cuisine, like the paella in Spain. The healing powers and culinary prestige of saffron spread through Europe, even reaching the far corners of England. It's even said that saffron is thought to have been used as a defense against the Great Plague. The legend of saffron is thrilling indeed. But history aside, it's saffron's mark on our culinary traditions that makes it the golden flag bearer of Iranian cuisine. If I was to choose one ingredient, one ingredient only, in the centuries-old cuisine to distinguish, it, to distinguish it from any other, it would be most certainly be saffron. We use saffron to perfume, color, and flavor everything from our savory dishes like our stews, to our celebrated rice dishes, to our pastries, there's more of our rice dishes. <laughs> and to our halvas, candies, teas, breads, sharbats, and even ice cream. And of course, we use it to tint the prize tadig, the crispy, buttery, saffron-tinged at the bottom of the pot. Iranian home cooks have also figured out a way to stretch and use saffron economically. Very little saffron is needed to stain and flavor a dish. In fact, as you can guess, too much saffron can turn a dish bitter, and not to mention the uncontrollable laughter and mania and hysteria. So when using saffron, we hardly ever use the whole thread. Instead, we grind the threads, and that's my late father teaching one of my girls how to grind saffron. We, use the, uh, we grind the threads to a fine powder, either in a mortar and pestle, or if, like me, you're cooking a lot, we, I use a dedicated spice grinder. And in my house, I have to be very, very specific, because otherwise, coffee beans would end up in that grinder, and we don't want that. So once you've ground it um, to a fine powder, and if the saffron isn't dry enough, you can add a little pinch of sugar or a sugar cube to create friction, and that'll help. Then you, go at, you, you use it, you transfer it um, to a small jar, like a tiny jam jar, and store it in a cool, dark cabinet. Word to the wise, don't rush this process, as I have learned a few times. When you're in a rush, terrible things can happen, like spilling your saffron. And I wish I had known then that I could have taken that kitchen towel and maybe soaked it in water and then drank it and made myself feel better about spilling the saffron. My husband, on the other hand, who is not Iranian, but is infinitely more patient and resourceful than I, he has a great system for transferring the saffron. In fact, one of his favorite sayings is, as he's doing is, this is, in case of an emergency, grab the children, grab the passports, and grab the saffron. So when you're ready to use the saffron, bring a small amount of water to a boil, then turn the kettle off, and let it sip for a couple of minutes. 
Sprinkle however much saffron you need in a small glass or a bowl and then you want to top it off with that hot water. The reason you want to let the water settle for a bit is because they say if you pour boiling water on saffron, it kills saffron's soul. And no one wants to kill saffron's soul. Stir, cover, and steep. And this is your saffron water. And this process releases the flavor, color, and medicinal properties of the saffron. And, and this is a huge and, before you wash that glass, Surely there will be some saffron still clinging to the sides of that glass or bowl. Please don't stick it under the sink. Pour in another little bit of water and either add it to your dish or knock it back yourself and drink to your own good health. Saffron and this ritual of preparing it encompasses just about every element essential to Persian cooking. Scent, color, flavor, food as healer, ancient traditions, and respect. The respect of history and tradition, but more importantly, the respect for the love, care, and toil that goes into its cultivation. The English word saffron comes from the per Persian and Arabic zafiron, meaning the color yellow or golden. Iran is responsible for about 90% of the world's saffron production. The saffron fields of Khorasan province in the northeastern region of Iran and Kerman and Fars provide the optimal climate and soil to cultivate saffron. Saffron cultivation is dependent on a rainy spring followed by dry, sunny summers. Saffron refers to the deep red gold stigmas or the threads of the crocus sativus, this delicate purple, purple crocus flower. Crocus sativus doesn't grow in the wild. It's a sterile mutant plant and doesn't produce a viable seed. So what this means is that it needs to be manipulated by us, by humans. For 3,000 years, the corm or the bulb of, this, of the crocus sativus has been divided and replanted. The growth and cultivation of saffron is as dependent on us as we are on it. Each bulb of the crocus sativus produces two flowers and each flower has three stigmas. The flowers are harvested by hand every autumn, actually right about this time in mid-October, this is the saffron harvest. Right at dawn, when the crocus sativus blooms, workers take to the fields to harvest the flowers and the flowers have to be picked in a matter of hours since they wilt very quickly. Then the stigmas are hand-picked, one by one, and dried right away. It takes about 200 crocus flowers to make one gram of saffron. It's extremely labor-intensive, and harvest only lasts for about two to three weeks. Hence the high cost of this prized spice, and why it's treated with such respect when used in our kitchens. At its finest, saffron is said to be more expensive in weight than gold. So like any other sought after ingredient, the saffron market is also mired in controversy. Regrettably, Iranian saffron can't escape the politics of our time. As of the about 16, past 16 years or so, Iranian saffron has fallen victim to sanctions imposed on Iran by the US. Complicated embargoes and travel bans have become, sadly, a part of Saffron's narrative, which makes those family phone calls and Saffron packets or pill bottles stuffed in suitcases seem even more clandestine. There are also various qualities and strengths of Saffron. The highest quality is determined by its strength and purity which is in part measured by how much style, and the style is the yellow part coming down from the threads, by how much style is included with the, with the saffron, is picked along with the stigma. The highest grade saffron is called negin, which means gem in Persian. 
and it includes no style at all, which makes it the most extravagant, flavorful, and fragrant, and the most potent. Sargol, meaning the top of the flower, is the second most potent. And that's what you would usually find in commercial grade saffron that you buy from your Persian markets. What is referred to as adulterated saffron is saffron that has been mixed with other ingredients to increase its weight or to stain it, such as safflower threads could be thrown in there just to increase the weight. The most adulterated form of saffron is found in pre-ground threads and saffron water that you can also find at most Iranian markets and Middle Eastern markets. I highly recommend that you don't purchase pre-ground saffron or the saffron water because most likely it's been mixed with either turmeric or paprika to make it seem like saffron. Unfortunately for us, the consumer, there really isn't a set standard to determine the purity of saffron. So it's very important to ensure that you know where your saffron comes from and making sure you have a reputable supplier like my mother. <laughs> like any family business, I have also become a saffron runner of sorts. And on a side note, I get this excited every time my tadig turns out. No matter how many times I make tadig, it's still a cause for celebration because one never really knows. Whenever I make a trip to my local Iranian market, I'll quickly send out a text to non-Iranian friends who have wholeheartedly embraced our cuisine. And they're even cooking more Persian food from my book than I am on a weekly basis. So um, I'm going to the market and I'll send a text and I'll say, what do you need? Pomegranate molasses, sangak, limuamani, dried damask rose petals, gul mohammadi, and saffron always top the list that I get back. Um, when you go to the Persian market, and I believe there is one close to here called the Rose Market, you'll see packets of Iranian saffron securely displayed behind the counter. This is the kind of specialty item the store owner will personally hand to you. On a recent field trip to my market in Los Angeles in Santa Monica with some friends visiting from Honduras, we asked for a packet of saffron. My friend was telling me that saffron is incredibly expensive in Honduras. So we went to the market. Instead of, and I told the grocer that my friend is visiting from Honduras, and this was a great show of our hospitality as well, because instead of handing me the prepackaged packet, the store owner gave us a knowing look, and he reached under the counter and grabbed a pink and black Victoria's Secret bag. <laughs> Instantly, we were overcome with the unmistakable, sweet, heady, and intoxicating scent of saffron. In our delirium, for a few minutes, we were transported to a lush ancient Persian garden, or Cleopatra's bath hall, shimmering in red gold. Before completely losing our senses, the store owner reached inside the Victoria's Secret bag and pulled out a large plastic bag of saffron threads. Only the best straight from Iran, he said, with a twinkle in his eye. My friend from Honduras could not believe her good luck. He then grabbed a vintage scale, and I kid you not, the scale looked like it was left over from 1952 or something, and asked how much saffron we needed, which he weighed out and delicately transferred to a, to a small plastic pouch. The scent and sight of that Victoria's Secret Saffron had us smiling and laughing, but not uncontrollably. The laughter was fully under control for the rest of the day. A few days later, my friend from Honduras um, texted me with a series of photos of their family meal. Saffron kissed rice, saffron chicken, and yogurt dusted with rose petals. The Saffron Road knows no borders when approached with respect and gathered around an expanding kitchen table.
and it certainly doesn't hurt if it's delivered in a Victoria's Secret bag. This ritual of traveling with food is an image familiar to many of us, Iranian and non-Iranian. Just to, for an example, I came, I got in today from Los Angeles with a big container of Bodum John fried eggplant for the class tomorrow. And sure enough, I got pulled aside by TSA and they had to like look it upside down and turn it inside out asking me what it was, but I got through. It was actually me and a rabbi got pulled aside. And they took out both our stuff at the same time. I had the fried eggplant, some dates, because I always travel with some dates. My mom says, in case you get stuck, it'll keep you alive. I go with it. And some Persian cucumber for something crisp and cool, because you need balance in Persian food. Anyways. And then what do they pull out of his bag, the rabbi? Some bread and some nuts and some tangerines. And we looked at each other and we said, well, we have a perfect meal. My fried eggplant with your bread, the dates and the nuts, cucumber and tangerines. And for, an, for a second, the world was a better place. This ritual of traveling with food is an image familiar to many of us, Iranian and non-Iranian. But I would venture to say that Iranians have elevated it to competitive sports levels. Just when you think you can't fit in another packet of sa saffron or a box of gaz or sohan, in walks a family member and magically creates more space in your suitcase for a few more homemade piroshki. We are the cultural MacGyvers of stashing food. Traveled across oceans and borders is an extension of time and place, a sweet taste and remembrance that you can revisit long after you have departed. Or it can be an introduction to a land you have yet to visit. But it's more than simply looking back on photos or videos. It's a visceral return to that place that evokes all senses, smell, touch, sight, virtual reality in a bite like that unforgettable sweet kiss. If kisses could be packed in a bag, and if they could, I'm sure my mom could make some room in your bag for that too. But for an immigrant community, the voyage of these ingredients takes on a new meaning. Beyond a memento or a sweet reminder of a walk along the Seine, every strand of saffron tells a story of lives interrupted and lives rebuilt. Old homes, new homes, and homes we've only heard of in stories and family folklore. Our spices and the jars that house them tell the stories of our lives. My own saffron story begins at the source. It's a story we all share. My family left Iran when I was eight years old to never go back. It was the height of the 1979 revolution and hostage crisis. Those were chaotic and uncertain times. And my recollections of Iran flicker in and out of focus. Amid the murmurs of unrest on the streets of Tehran, there were family trips to the Caspian Sea, to the lush, and to the lush landscapes of the rice paddies, Shomal, the north, my father's birthplace. There were summer vacations at my grandfather's house in Tabriz, my mother's birthplace. And in Tehran, my birthplace, there was always a home-cooked meal of cello choresh, rice and stew, to gather around at our modest apartment kitchen table. It was also at that very same table that the difficult decision was made to leave our home without knowing that we would be leaving it for good. Leaving it without entrusting to memory the final meal eaten around that kitchen table. Of course, you don't commit to memory the lasts when you don't know they're going to be the last, especially when it seems unfathomable that you will never return to your homeland. The last meals and the last hugs go undocumented, and you spend the next 35 years of your life trying to conjure them up in a simple pot of saffron-stained stew. The murmurs of unrest turned into demonstrations, which became a revolution, which led to blackouts, sirens, and bombs. We quickly said our goodbyes to relatives, many of whom we would never see again, 
and overnight life changed entirely as we departed for Italy. My parents had met in Rome decades earlier. My mother, a poet, um, immersing herself in Italian literature, and my father studying architecture. Those early years in Rome, as we searched for a new country to call home, uncertainty about what the future would hold consumed our daily thoughts. But it was in the kitchen and that two-burner stove that grounded us. At that time, a stroll through our local Roman market, this is back in 1980, would have been enchanting indeed, but even the Roman mercatos didn't carry some of the ingredients for our comforting dishes. So we improvised, like we all do, and made do, substituting where possible, but always with an eye out for the postman and packages from Iran. Packages bursting with dried herbs and spices, well-traveled secrets from home. Envelopes with a few perfunctory words from family, lest officials be monitoring them and a photograph or two pulled out of the picture albums that were left behind, substitutes for all the loved ones that were left behind. And every once in a while, in between the written words, the photographs, the spices, and the scents, we would put, pull out a golden package of saffron, a taste of Iran, a taste of home, brightening up our days, a drizzle of saffron water, to soothe the ache of a homesick heart. We spent a brief but formative few years in Rome before eventually immigrating to Canada, always with the scent of saffron and a perfectly steamed pot of rice trailing us across oceans and borders. It took a revolution and thousands of miles between me and Iran, the land I once called home, to fully, completely comprehend the effect a simple pot of rice would have on my life. It was during those years in our new Canadian home that I became, uh, became aware of the power of my mother's home-cooked Persian meals. Instead of spending time explaining to my new Canadian friends where Iran was on the map and teaching them over and over again how to properly pronounce the word Iran, Iran, you ran where? No, it's Iran, E, E, no, uh, no, E. It gets, it gets tiring. All I had to do was to implement my secret weapon. After school play dates that drifted into dinner. There is not a kid in this world who doesn't love Tadiq, the Trojan horse of Persian cooking. This was food that had the unique ability to break down barriers, introducing and connecting me to my newly friends culture and to connect them to my culture and to me. Shortly after graduating university, I left Vancouver for Los Angeles in search of sunny skies and in pursuit of an acting career. It was, I, I felt like no one else had done that before. <laughs> I quickly, in Los Angeles, I quickly found myself hungry, and not because of an actual lack of food I was eating, but because I was starved for a home-cooked Persian meal. Once again, hungry for a taste of home, and I was on my own. Notebook and pencil in hand, I called up Maman and I frantically took notes to recreate my favorite dishes. Now these quote-unquote recipes that Maman shared with me were nothing more than a bare-bones list of ingredients, always with the proviso to use whatever was available in the fridge or the pantry. Make do with what you have, but don't forget the saffron. Cook with your eyes, touch, nose were and still are her mottos. Amounts were specified in such terms as, as much as you like, the tip of a knife, this much, this much, this much, this much, and just enough for the scent of the saffron to dance around the kitchen, making your head spin and your heart thump. And my favorite, whatever it takes to bring it to life. This was and is our cooking is, it's cooking that relies on intuition, constant tasting, and a good dose of lemon juice and saffron water. Extracting recipes from my mother and other family members and friends was certainly not a straightforward process. 
It also meant patiently listening to the stories of each dish or ingredient that uh, each dish or ingredient sparked. The road from a sprinkle of saffron to dancing the night away in the cafes of 1952 Tehran is short indeed. And my mother had a lot of those stories. A few years later, as I found my way around my kitchen and started cooking for my own family, those recipes took on a life of their own, simmering with their own stories at the bottom of the pot. The kitchen became a place where I could escape, relax, and reconnect with myself. The chopping board, my yoga mat, in true LA style. My book is a collection of recipes and stories from the past and present. These are the home-cooked meals that I grew up eating and the everyday food that I now make for my own family. Traditional Iranian food varies from region to region, home to home, neighborhood to neighborhood. Everyone has very strong feelings about the food from their particular region. You're not going to make everyone happy. The same stew can differ slightly in taste and preparation depending on its geographical location. This is what I refer to as accented food. My cooking is naturally a, a, a reflection of most of my life lived outside of Iran. And it simmers with its own multicultural accent. But at its core, it's home cooking, and it's meant to be shared with family and friends, with plenty of storytelling and plenty of saffron sprinkled in. Thank you. And we can, I'm happy to take any and all questions. Yes, sir. sound very simple, but kateba must. Just simple rice with, a, with yogurt. As much as I love saffron, yogurt is my life. Yogurt is life. If I could bring yogurt on the plane, I would have had yogurt with me too, but TSA would have certainly taken my yogurt away. Um, in its, in its simplicity, this is a dish that was given to us when we were kids. If you had a stomachache, if you weren't feeling well, it's simple, but it, ha it's, it covers everything that's home, warmth, and comfort for me. Now, having said that, back to your question about other spices. Yes, so I think we're mostly Iranians here, so I don't need to say this, but Iranians go through green herbs, not in, uh, you know, working on the book, I had to work with my editors and, and, and working with newspapers and food magazines, and they always want me to give them ingredients, my herbs in cups and tablespoons. And I tell them before we even begin, uh, I say that um, it's offensive to me. It hurts my soul to chop up herbs and stuff it in a cup or a tablespoon because that's simply just, and I think it's offensive to the herbs, to the parsley and the cilantro and the dill. They don't want to be stuffed in those cups and tablespoons. They want to be scattered. Um, but. So if you're not Iranian, we, we use herbs by the bunches, by the kilograms. Nothing like those little packets of herbs from Trader Joe's, that, it, that would just go in my mouth in one bite. So herbs, Persian basil, which is sometimes referred to as lemon basil, there's nothing like that bite. And it has a, a slight, um, it's not a tang, but there's a perfume to it, to that Persian basil. The perfect bite, lokme, which is like a perfect bite, little bite handed to you 
by your mother or your grandmother or you can make your perfect little lokme. So if I'm not having kate with mast, I'm taking a piece of lavash, barbari, sangak, little cheese, feta cheese, tangy, a walnut, rehan, Persian basil, that's all I need. And I'll roll that up and put that in my bag, along with my dates, because you never know. She's waiting for phone calls, actually. She's on call right now. Um, we'll talk later. My favorite gadget, I should have brought it. I brought it for the class tomorrow. So that little, the tiny jam jar that I use to put my ground up saffron, I have a little wooden um, spoon and I call that my, my mother-in-law is here and she's very familiar with my kitchen. And um, I use, that's my saffron spoon and no one else can touch it. That's the only spoon that I work with to get my saffron out. So I love my saffron spoon, of course my knife, I'm attached to that my knife. But we were just having this conversation earlier and I'd like to open it up to everyone. I love my Persian rice cooker. Now, some might say it's not authentic, it's not traditional, it's cheating. So what? We're busy people. I'm not gonna be making, you know, the traditional way of rice on a Wednesday night when we're all crashing through the door and my kids are hungry and I'm hungry and we're all tired. What I want to do is put the rice and water and oil and salt in there and plug it in and ta-da, tadig, and everyone's really happy. And I highly recommend it for people, um, for non-Iranians or even Iranians who, who also, like most of us, don't have time. So I call the cello style of rice making, which is the, um, uh, you know, the traditional way of making rice, the two-step method of first parboiling it then straining, and then steaming. I reserve that for parties, for having friends over, but on a regular night, I'm either making kate or I'm using my Persian rice cooker. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, yes, and then I'll, yes, yeah, sir, he had his hand up. Since uh, you have all your achievements from your mother, can you drink here? She would love it. <laughs> She'll read you a poem. <laughs> yes. The difference between Spanish saffron and Iranian saffron. So here's an interesting thing. I learned that um, not now, but for the past about 20 years or so, Spain was actually importing Iranian saffron and then labeling it as Spanish saffron. So it has changed. Unfortunately, the saffron market, like I said, it's not, you know, the olive oil business has gotten better about this, about, you know, there's denominations and where it was packed and where it was made. The saffron market isn't quite there yet. So it's hard to know. Now, the difference between Spanish saffron, you're speaking to an Iranian. To me, like that Victoria's Secret bag, when you purchase saffron, you should smell, you should get hit with that fragrance right away when you crack it open. Even before you crack it open, we could smell it through the bag. And I'm not, you know, I wasn't being, I was poetic about it. We really were intoxicated by that scent. If you don't get that scent when you buy your saffron from Trader Joe's or, you know, Safeway or wherever, it's, it's not great quality saffron. And you're just paying just as much for it. So make note, like buy it if you find that, no, I'm not getting the scent. Just kind of keep that in mind. Make friends with Iranians. <laughs> they will have you over for dinner, they'll cook for you, and then they will eventually say, what would you like? And you say a packet of saffron, and boom, <laughs> you're set. I'm gonna go, yes, sir. Oh, thank you very much for a great talk. I think we are living in an incredibly diverse society. So my question is, how Americanized is your recipes compared to authentic recipes in Iran? Great question. Great question. I personally don't believe in authentic Iranian recipes because what does that mean? From where? Which region? Which neighborhood? Iranian recipes are very, very diverse coming out of Iran. And I think there is this thinking that there is just this 
you know, the top 10 of Qaymeh, Qurma Sabzi, that just come out of Tehran, and that's, but that's not the case. I grew up with um, a father from Gilan and a mother from Azerbaijan. The food we ate was very different than what, you know, someone from Esfahan or from the south of Iran. We're all starting, I, I think that in the diaspora, we're just starting to realize how diverse Iranian food is in itself, which is fascinating in itself. And I know Najmi Abad Mangalich will be with you in a few weeks, and she can speak to this as well, because she traveled through Iran, and her new book is about that. As far as my cooking, it's the food that I grew up with, but I've been cooking in my kitchen in Los Angeles. So I'm using ingredients that are available to me there, except for the saffron that's coming straight from Iran. So. There are some recipes that might not seem as quote-unquote authentic to some. For instance, I have a Gorma Sabzi recipe which uses black-eyed peas. And I can't, instead of red kid kidney beans, which we're typically used to seeing that um, at Persian restaurants. I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten, people telling me I don't know what I'm doing. This is how, in the north of Iran, how they make Gorma Sabzi in Gilan and Azerbaijan, and even to the south, they use black-eyed peas. So as a community, I think it's always best to take a step back and take a breath, take a breath, and just think, well, she made it with black-eyed peas. Before tearing that person down, maybe ask a question first. <laughs> That's interesting. You use black-eyed peas. I have, you know. so. Um, so there are my family recipes, and then there are recipes that I've developed myself. Uh, if we think of um, Iranian cu cu cuisine as regional, then I think the diaspora is part of that region as well, which includes me. I always think of myself and people of my generation as the in-between. Those of us that left very young, we have a connection, but you know it ended, it stopped. As much as our parents tried, I grew up in the West. So my cooking is going to be a reflection of that region of Iran. Yes, sir. And uh, since uh, people these days they are uh, health conscious, <laughs> uh, also vegetarian, mm -hmm. are you uh, converting some of the Iranian recipes with excessive tofu or other things which are vegetarian? I don't use tofu, <laughs> but. I, uh, I do mention in my book that many of our, for instance, our stews, we have so many um, bean-based stews that they're naturally vegetarian. So many of our osh are vegetarian, are thick soups. There's no need for meat in it. So I do mention in many of the recipes, if I am using meat, I will also mention, you know, you could easily make this without the meat to just increase um, the beans. I appreciate your comment because as a family, we're also trying to consume less meat. And in general, my family, we don't eat a lot of red meat. So, you know, I make some of the stews with chicken or I love fish, so we'll have a lot more fish. But I will make, um, which you can't really call it because means the meat, but we'll call it I make it without the meat and just use the lape, the, the dal. Um, just use more of it and then add eggplant in there or zucchini in there. And it's just really just as delicious. There was, yes. Oh, yeah, I just was wondering uh, like, if you have any advice for keeping time Keeping? You know, I don't know what it's like around here, but in um, LA, ours, like we, we have a Ralph's, which is the equivalent of a Safeway. They have a great fresh herb section. So I don't even go to the Persian market for my herbs anymore, except for the Persian basil. I haven't found that anywhere else. But the Persian market, or a farmer's markets, have a great selection of um, fresh herbs. Um, Trader Joe's not so much because they come in those little packets. But I do think um, your regular large supermarket has really upped its game in purchasing fresh herbs. You can definitely find parsley, cilantro, 
Dill on occasion, um, green onion for sure, um, uh, you know, chives, which is not really the kind of chives we use, but that's okay, you can substitute. Um, mint, fresh mint, I see a lot of fresh mint now in those supermarkets. So yeah, I do think it's, it's gotten definitely better than when we moved to Vancouver in 1982. Um, we had to go to the Asian markets to get all our fresh herbs. Yes? I think this is a really beautiful thing about uh, an immigrant community too. Our food will not stay the same as it was in Iran. We're not in Iran. I can't make the same stew. It's not the same soil that 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 chive, you know, was um, growing in. It's going to be different. And I think it's the substitutions, it's what makes us as immigrants um, resourceful, that we, we've still been able to put this food on the table by, you know, finding the substitutions. And that's okay. And that's okay. And honestly, if we want to talk about eating locally and regionally, then that's the only way to do it. It's not going to cut it if it's a dried package from Iran. Yes. Uh, thank you, Nuts. Uh, when your life slows down a little bit, <laughs> would you ever consider asking for uh, seeds of uh, some of these herbs and growing them yourself? I won't do that. Okay. I just know I won't get to it. I'll kill them and then I'll feel really bad. I have a really guilty conscience. But yes, you, you can. Some. <laughs> yes, we can get you some of the seeds. For instance, we have this wonderful herb called gulpat, which is Persian hogweed. They call it angelica. It's not really angelica, but the label says angelica. We're complicated even when it comes to our herbs. It's technically Persian hogweed. But um, Hanif Saj, who's coming, he will be teaching one of the classes. Um, and he hosted one of my dinners for my book uh, last year in, in San Francisco. He has found wild angelic Persian hogweed in the hills of Berkeley. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. I will go here and then I'll go there. Yes? How do you feel about Zeresh? I love Zeresh. <laughs> um, barberries. They're the little red jewel like berries. Um, I love Zeresh. How do I. Is there anything more you wanted to know about it? <laughs> yes, there. So the Persian palate, we love all, I would describe the Persian palate as um, sour. We love sour, and not sour in a kind of like Mickey wince kind of sour, but as in bright and alive. When my mom says, now bring it to life, what does that mean even? Like, that's all she says. Well, what she means is taste it. Does it need salt? Does it need? But what she's really saying is, did you use the chachni, that, which is typically the acid? Now, it could be pomegranate molasses. It could be zeresh. It could be limu almani, the dried Persian limes. It could be tamarind. Lemon juice is your best friend in the kitchen, as far as I'm concerned. It's, I call it the band-aid of cooking. If anything goes wrong, just add lemon juice to it and you'll probably be okay. Um, lime juice. So we really love that bright, flavorful, um, not overpowering, but just acid makes, brings things to life, brings food to life, it brightens it up. Vinegar. I'll pretty much add lemon juice to anything you put in front of me. Say, well, no, even my tea, too. Oh, pure, verjuice, thank you, verjuice. And I know that you have some really great suppliers of verjuice in Napa who are making some really nice verjuice. So I would take advantage of that. And you know that pure is the unripe sour green grape, which we also use. And then verjuice is the juice of. Yes. <laughs> I think there was one there and then I'll go. Yes. Yeah. 
to me also falls, so if there's authentic and then there's fusion, I'm not comfortable with these terms. Um, I don't really know what that, like, you know, having grown up in Italy as well, like we add saffron to our tomato sauce and I recommend every, it just, it's really good um, for pasta sauce. But by fusion, I probably have accidentally without knowing that I'm fusing. Yes. So my favorite Iranian restaurant is my friend's house. Where yes, mine too. Do you have a favorite Iranian restaurant in the Bay Area? We were just speaking of this, and I guess there aren't many. I know that um, Haas Zareh had a restaurant called Sly Trap in San Francisco, but he doesn't. He's, he's not there anymore. Um, I'm not familiar with any Iranian restaurants in the Bay Area. And in, in where? Okay, we'll have to keep that in mind. Okay. What I would personally like to see from um, Iranian restaurateurs, and this is just me personally, is for them to take a more of a risk, which means we all know of the cello kababis. So again, we serve the qaymeh, the cello kabob, the qurma sabzi, fesanjun, and here I'm very, very, I'm very forgiving when it comes to food, but I'm very, very particular when it comes to fesanjun. In particular, um, I grew up with a gilaki from Gilan, not sweet, sour. So my kids, those two that you saw up there, they're fully Americanized kids, but if you put sweet fesanjun in front of them, they won't touch it. <laughs> because they've gotten used to my palate as well. In fact, my eight-year-old, she was eight years old and someone served it and she said out loud at the table in front of everybody, this is dessert. <laughs> so we had to talk about the regionality of Fesanjun. But yes, yeah, so what I mean by um, taking a risk is, uh, it, you know, like we were just speaking, there are so many different regions of Iran that, with their own food. I'd like to see more of that. We all know with the red kidney beans. How about something from the south of Iran? How exciting would that be? We can hope. Yes? Um, so I just moved in with my mom, Blizzard. Um, Lucky you. I know I am. Because she lives in the area. And I, first thing I said when I moved in, I was like, I can't eat this with rice all the time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And she made tidy good quinoa for me. And we were just talking about that. Yeah. So she's really hyped about that too. Because um, she was trying to like not eat so much carbs as well. And so I was wondering if you had any other grain suggestions that work well for Iran's So I do have actually a quinoa recipe in there. We were just talking about this. I eat quinoa. I don't think it's the most exciting food in the world. It, you know, it's one of those things you eat and you make do. But I mix it with zedishk and saffron water and I'll, you know, other, like I'll throw in some nuts and it's pretty palatable, it's pretty good. Um, there's an Italian grain called farro, which I love. It's like a dense um, wheat, I love farro. I love barley and we use that a lot anyways in our grain, in our um, meals, in our dishes. I make a lot of our rice dishes with brown rice, again, it's not as exciting as the real thing, but we don't eat white rice every single night either. We do change it up. Um, we certainly have it probably, most definitely once a week. But, um, so yes, I w my, my favorite grain at the moment is farro. I love, it has that, it has a nutty quality to it and a little bit of a bite. Um, I would say that, farro. And quinoa will do. Yes. Do you use turmeric as a, date, as a spice? Absolutely. Yeah. We do use turmeric. Um, the base for most Persian stews, so you fry up your onion, and he, that's another difference in our cooking, is that we really get the most flavor out of that initial onion. That's where a lot of flavor comes out of. So we don't let it go to just soft and limp. We kind of get really, we caramelize it, but not in the sense of caramelizing that it gets like for 40 minutes and it gets soft. We essentially fry it. 
And then, so it purges to, you get that onion going, then in goes the turmeric, and then if you're using meats, then we'll put your meat, and then we use cinnamon in our savory dishes, hardly ever in our sweet dishes, in our baked goods. Cinnamon, um, sometimes cloves, ad, it's called advia. Advia simply means spice or spice mix. So um, a lot of people ask me, they think it's like a specific thing, it's not. Advia is just either spice or spice mix. And every region has a different spice mix. Every dish might have a different spice mix. And every household will have their own spice mix. And they will never tell you what's in it, unfortunately. Yes? Thank you very much for the graduate most poetic part of you. Thank you. And as I read in your biography, you have a culinary degree in education and all that. I don't. Well, no, I, I won an award from a culinary. I don't know what they were thinking, oh, but. <laughs> and there's things I used that I just, I didn't have it either, but just use the technique, like caramelizing, mm -hmm. all other techniques. Obviously, you originality of the frying or Persian flavor, but it adds to it. What do you find about this? So if you add, add like caramelizing or the frying onion in it, what do you think about that? About, I'm sorry, what is the, the question? The changing of the technique of some of the Persian original frying and spice, mm -hmm. adding new technique like caramelizing, a little bit having more water and that. So what did I learn from that? I think um, once you get to know the technique of, so I think when we learn about a new cuisine, we think it's mostly about the ingredients. I actually think it's more about the technique. Then you can use whatever you want to do. So once you get that the Persian palate likes to lean sour, that we like to caramelize or fry that onion, Go ahead and use whatever you like. Throw in a meat, don't throw in a meat. Use some mushrooms, use quinoa, but get familiar with the palate of the cuisine. Get an understanding of what this food, not, is, not only what is it supposed to taste like, I call it the spirit of the food. What is the spirit of the food? And then do your own thing with it. I'm not a traditionalist. I honor tradition, I pay homage to it, but I'm a rebel at heart too. So I think you, in your kitchen, it's like what my mother says, use what you got. And that's the spirit of Persian cooking as well. We're resourceful people. We will make do, we will make the best um, kukul, an egg-based dish, out of just little things left in the fridge. But we might add a little caramelized onion to it, a little turmeric, a little zereshk in there, and then somehow it'll be kind of Persian-ish. Thank you. Do you have a recipe for those? I don't, not in my book, but um, I can tell you where you can find a good recipe for those. I will, I will let you know where. I have a friend of mine who is a pastry chef, Iranian pastry chef in Los Angeles, and I know on her site, um, she has a good recipe for those. Zozo Baking, zozobaking.com, Z-O-Z-O. -Z -O. Yes. Great talk, thank you for sharing. Thank you. The question is about history. Uh, if you go back a couple hundred years ago, or a few centuries back, and want to characterize the Persian cuisine in that era, would that be similar to what we have right now? Um, and to give a little bit more context, I was reading in uh, some book from the Sapiens um, that uh, availability of ingredients in a culture kind of helps shape um, the cuisine for that culture. And the example that the book gave was Indian cuisine that uh, quite uh, transformed uh, around the 14th century by introduction of pepper, chili peppers that were brought in from Central America, uh, <coughs> Mexico, North America. So um, I've always wondered, we, um, like, generations pass down these recipes to next generations, uh, but 
if you go back a few hundred years, um, which inflection points were there that we can discover? Or have you looked at those? I've, I've looked at it a little bit. I think there's still hints of what the cuisine might have been like. It was certainly depending on what region, again, like you were saying, it was heavier on the meats and on the use of fruit, which we can still see in our cuisine. But the use of cooking fruit along with the meats. And we still, a lot of our stews, we have an apple stew, we have a quince stew, we have an orange stew. I just, at the end of the summer, I made a really good peach stew, which is one of my favorites. Um, so you would see that as well. Now, as far as how is it passed down, I don't think it fully gets passed down, but again, it's these elements of it that trickle down. For instance, tomatoes, which we use a lot in our cuisine, were not native to Iran. They were brought, brought from, I believe, by the Portuguese um, from Europe. So, but now there's so we use tomato paste so often and tomatoes in our cuisine. So it's stuck, you know? Um, and that's what I was getting to as far as cooking outside of Iran. What's going to be passed down to my children? It's, it's going to be what's coming from me, right? Unless if they go back to Iran and visit and get a sense for it, for what they're doing there. <coughs> I think it's only natural for this to happen. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Is that kind of what you were getting to? Uh, uh, you know, rice wasn't, we eat a lot of rice now, we're known for our rice, but it wasn't the main grain in our cuisine. It was bread. Rice was for the wealthy and for the landowners. The stews were eaten with bread. And then, you know, rice became a food for all. So there's going to be this trajectory of, as it, as it should be, I think, over time. Yes? When are you going to cook that White House? Not any time. Well, hopefully one day soon, but not any time in the near future. <laughs> Well, now that we're all starving. Yes. 